ahead and turn to Romans, the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. My name is Scott Shoup. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, our head pastor, Pastor Bart, is out of, out of state right now. He's at a wedding this weekend for one of his nephews, and so I am excited and privileged to get to, get to speak this morning. Um, I want to I want to pray before we before we keep going. I feel uh, a special sense of, of burden this morning with with the the message that the, I believe the Lord has has laid on my heart, and so I want to go right back into to a brief time of prayer. Father, God, as we talk about prayer this morning, we've already prayed multiple times, but God, I thank you for the the unbelievable privilege to get to approach you through prayer. And so I ask that right now for the next several minutes that your Holy Spirit would come. Thank you that you're already here, but I ask that you would come and that you would do what I cannot do, that you would uncover truth to us here in your word, and that you would so stir our hearts with gospel-shaped prayer that we would be, leave this place stirred, wanting to spend time with you and going deeper in our prayer lives. Thank you, God, for what you're going to do. And I ask this in the name and in the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, the Oscars were last Sunday, a week ago, uh, tonight. I don't know if anybody saw the Oscars. The Oscars are where they award the best movies. At least what Hollywood thinks are the best movies of the year. Um, I I did not actually watch the Oscars. Um, Haven't actually seen any of the movies that were nominated this year for Best Picture. Um, At least not yet, but... uh, the big story from the Oscars, I don't know, does anybody know what the big story was from the Oscars this year? They, they announced the wrong winner. They, they, and I, I went back and watched it online because um, I heard about it. And it's probably the most awkward five minutes of live television I've ever seen in my entire life. They literally ha- called the entire team up that was part of the movie that they had named, announced as Best Picture, and then about halfway through the acceptance speech, they... There are people running on stage behind them, and they kind of just awkwardly say, "Oh, by the way, so and so won. It wasn't it wasn't the team that the uh, the movie that we thought." Um, that makes me think, though, of another movie that actually did win Best Picture um, years ago, before I was even born. Um, but one of my favorite movies, really, and a movie by the name of Chariots of Fire. Has anybody seen Chariots of Fire in here? I know Pastor Bart doesn't recommend movies, but I will go ahead and recommend this one. Um, it's, it's, it's really good. And uh, just very briefly, this movie is about, um, really focuses on one guy, but it's kind of about two guys. Uh, the stories of two guys who are runners, who run in the Olympics. They're both European. And, uh, but they have two very different attitudes and approaches to how they approach running. One guy is, is a guy by the name of, of Harold Abrahams. He's, you can't really see him. He's kind of in the back in this picture um, with, with the sport coat kind of holding up his arm. But uh, he runs out of a sense of really fear of failure. And um, there's really no joy that he gets from running. And when he does not perform as well as what he expected himself to or what he thought he should have, uh, he feels just crushed and demoralized. But the other guy, really the main character in the story, I got him by the name of Eric Little, who is a real real character. Um, He's a Christian. And he runs out of a sense of joy and a sense of pleasure. And 
probably the most famous line from the movie, Eric Little says at one point, he says, uh, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I still get chills. I almost get choked up when I see that scene. That you, ha- you have these two guys, one, both looking at the same activity, both realize that it's good, but one doing it out of a sense of, of joyless duty and fear of, of failing, and the other doing it out of a sense of pleasure. And I think that's an amazing picture of uh, really the two types of attitudes that we have as believers towards prayer. And we all know that prayer is good. We know that we should be, be people of prayer, but it's so easy, at least speaking for myself, it's so easy to, to have the attitude of, of Harold Abraham's and see it as more, well, I just, if I don't do it well enough, I feel bad, and there's no joy that I get out of it. Um, but, but my desire this morning is that we, that we are, are stirred to see that prayer is not a duty, but it's a glorious opportunity. We've been in a series, Pastor Bart's been in a series called Back to the Future, um, talking about intentional discipleship, and really he's titled it Back to the Future because in a sense we're going back to some fundamentals of the faith so that we can go forward into the future of, of what God has for us. And so this morning we're going to be talking about prayer, and specifically about gospel-shaped prayer. And I chose that, that term for a reason that I hope we'll see as, as the morning goes on. But the way I want to do this is look at really just a couple of verses, really honing on one verse in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 might be, might be my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It would be hard to pick, but Romans 8 would definitely be way up there for me. Um, it, is, it is so full of treasures. But I want to hone in on 8.15, Romans 8.15, and pull a few other truths from throughout the chapter and look at gospel-shaped prayer. So just very, very briefly, some context for, for Romans 8. Romans is Paul's most thorough laying out of the gospel. He's been sending, spending seven chapters laying out the gospel, talking about all kinds of glorious themes. But Romans chapter 8 is really he's describing what the Christian life looks like in between the time of Jesus' first coming and the time of his second coming. We're in the time between the times. And he describes what, what that looks like or what that should look like as we, as we live in this time. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 14, but really we're focusing on verse 15. <clears throat> For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That word cry there in verse 15 is, is referring, or at least it definitely can refer, to our prayer life. So that's the connection there. If you're wondering, why are we talking about prayer from this passage? That's the connection between Romans 8.15 and prayer. But also this passage is speaking about those who are led by the Spirit. And we've been talking about discipleship, like I said. What is a disciple? Someone who follows Jesus. So someone who's following Jesus is someone who is led by the Spirit. So there's the connection with discipleship. <clears throat> But I think it's, it's so important here, before we really dive in, to see 
what kind of passage this is. Um, I think it's so fascinating that as I was, I didn't even think about this when I first started looking at this, at this verse, but I started thinking about it and realized Paul is not giving any commands here in this, in this passage. He's not given any commands. Paul in this verse is describing reality. He's describing reality. And the reality is that disciples or children of God pray to their father. Uh, J.C. Ryle said that prayer is to faith what breath is to life. And so sometimes before we can walk in a practical obedience to a practical command, because we are commanded to pray, but before, before we're able to do that, sometimes we have to see the reality, the spiritual reality that is behind that command. And so this is why oftentimes Paul will spend a lot of time in his letters kind of laying out spiritual reality, theology, before he gives some practical commands to people how to, how to walk that out. And so I would, I would contend that to the extent that we understand the reality of the gospel in our lives and how it shapes our prayer lives, to that extent, we will have deep and passionate prayer lives. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, he says that he defines prayer as a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. And he says, prayer is profoundly altered by the amount and accuracy of that knowledge. So I would like to suggest this morning that the reason that we don't have deeply passionate prayer lives is because we frequently live unaware of spiritual reality in our lives. And so this sermon is not so much a practical how-to, you know, when you pray, say this, this, and this, as much as it is about our general attitude towards prayer. For I believe that when we see how glorious and epic the opportunity of prayer is, it's going to lead us to want to pray. So that's where we're going. And I'd like to draw out two points with some subpoints from this, this text uh, to talk about our attitude on prayer and how a gospel-shaped view of prayer can change how we pray. And then at the end, offer a few thoughts of um, just practical application. And, and I'm, I'm going to close with actually a, a personal testimony from, from the lives of, of my wife, Andy, and me. So here we go. Holy Spirit, please come and, and stir us to pray, God, as we look at your word. Number one is, is this. Again, we're talking about spiritual realities here. We want to we connect with spiritual realities. And so first, the reality is, that you are to, we need to know our dependency. Know your dependency. Now, the more, the more dependent that you realize that you are on someone, the more likely you are to go to that person for help. Right? That's just, that's just common sense. Could it be, and, and I'm preaching, I'm preaching, believe me, I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone this morning. Um, could it be that the reason that we spend so little time in prayer is because we we think that we're more in control and more self-sufficient than what we really are. We don't realize how dependent we are on the Lord. Tim Keller tells a story. Um, he's a pastor in New York, and he tells a story of uh, the days following September 11th, 2001, the time of the, the terrorist attacks. And uh, he said that, you know, in, this, in the city of New York during that time, the city kind of went into sort of a clinical depression after, after those attacks, but also in his life, personally, his wife, Kathy, um, was struggling with, with Crohn's disease 
But then Tim Keller was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. So he's getting hit with all these things at the same time. And he shares in his book on prayer that he started to realize that his, his prayer life was not as deep and not as strong as what, it, as what it needed to be. And he and his wife were talking about how they needed to start praying together every night before they went to bed if they were going to make it through this. And uh, his wife, Kathy, she has this great quote in the book where this, this is what she said to her husband at that time. She says, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. Whether we realize it or not, that's the reality for all of us. Do we realize how dependent we are on God to the point where it drives us to pray? It says, it says back in, in verse 15, you know, it says this, by the spirit that God has placed in us, we cry, Abba, Father. That word cry is, is, is so interesting. It, it's often used in the New Testament uh, to talk about people, to describe people who are literally crying out loud. You remember the story of, of uh, blind Bartimaeus in the Gospels where Jesus is passing by and he cries out, Jesus, son of, son of David, have mercy on me. It's the same, same word there. When, when Jesus says, you know, if my disciples don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. It's the same word that's, that's used here. So it, it expresses a sense of, of desperation, and it's louder than a whisper. It, it, it's louder than a whisper. You know, it's, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, uh, when the Old Testament Israelites would pray, they, they tended to pray a little differently than what we probably pray here, at least how I pray as a 21st century American who is an introvert. Um, I tend to be kind of quiet and reserved when I pray. But an Old Testament Israelite was probably, they, what they would probably do is raise their arms outstretched towards heaven and pray really loudly and, and yell out to the Lord. And it talks about in Psalms 141, I, I lift my hands as I cry out to, to the Lord in prayer. And it's, it's this idea of a, of a little child um, calling out to her daddy, raising her arms and, and asking for, for him to, to pick her up. You know, um, my, my wife, Andy, and I, we have a, a daughter right now who's, uh, she's just turned 17 months, and uh, she's at, at an amazing time. I mean, I don't ever want her to grow out of this stage because uh, she never thinks twice about running up to me with her arms. She did it this morning in the foyer with, with her arms stretched out. And uh, I mean, man, that gets me when, when, she, when she comes up to me like that. Um, now, sometimes she does it simply because she wants me to, to get something for her or take her somewhere. But, but other times she does it simply because she just wants to be held by her, by her daddy. And that's, that's the idea that, that Paul has in mind. <clears throat> Multiple people who have, who have um, adopted um, from, from overseas have, have told stories of when they've gone overseas to countries like 
um, Russia or, or China, and they go into those orphanages um, to, to, to meet the, the child that they're going to adopt, and they walk into kind of the wing of the orphanage where the babies are. And they've, they'll say that it's, it's really odd that it, it's quiet. The babies aren't crying. It's, it's, it's eerily silent. Why do you think that in these orphanages, the babies aren't crying? It's because they've, they've learned that there's no one who's going to respond to them. There's no one who's listening to them. And so over time, they've learned to not cry. And if, if one of those children happens to get adopted, it, it usually takes a while after they are brought into their new family to learn to cry again because they learn that, oh, now I'm in a family where I have a father, I have a mother who is going to respond to my cry, who's going to listen. That's the idea that Paul is, is conveying here, that we as children, we cry, not only out of desperation and out of dependency on him, but we cry because we know we have a God who responds, who hears. It says in Psalms, David addresses God as, oh, you who hear prayer. Not only that, not only should we know our dependency, but we, are to know our, we need to know our privilege, know our privilege in prayer. If, if all I ever did was just, just tell you, you know, prayer is just a duty and you just got to work harder at it. You just got to do it. You got to try harder. That's probably not going to be a very strong motivation. But if somehow through the Holy Spirit you can see the the mind-blowing, I mean literally mind-blowing privilege that you have to come before God in prayer, it's going to naturally lead you to want to pray. So I have three sub-points here of, of, of our privilege before God in gospel-shaped prayer. And the first is this, your prayers are empowered. Your prayers are empowered. Where do I, where do I get that? What do I mean by that? That's, that's here in the text. Verse 15 again. You have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What this means is you're not alone when you pray, as much as it may feel like it sometimes. You're not just throwing words up to the ceiling by yourself, out of your own strength. At least that doesn't have to be your reality. The spirit of God is himself dwelling within you, stirring you up, empowering you to pray. He's the one who creates confidence in us that we are loved by God as a father. Jonathan Edwards says, I was reading some Jonathan Edwards sermons um, as I was preparing for this, and it so stirred me. Um, he says this, he says, when the people of God are stirred up to prayer, it is the effect of his, God's, intention to show mercy. Therefore, he pours out the spirit of grace and supplication. He's basically saying, when, when the people of God are stirred to pray, when you either individually or corporately, that desire is already evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life, causing you to, to, to have that yearning to cry out to God as Father. And so when God wants to move, what does He first do? He stirs His people to pray. He stirs them to, to cry out for what He wants to do. <clears throat> also, the, the Spirit of God, when, when, when God sees you pray, 
as a spirit-empowered believer. He sees that it's not just your strength that's bringing those prayers up to him. He sees the Holy Spirit inside of you, and he's pleased. When, when, um, when Jesus was baptized in the Gospels, remember, and he comes up out of the water, and a voice comes from heaven, and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well, pleased. And then what does he do? The Holy Spirit comes down and dwells on Jesus, fills Jesus like a dove. So the Spirit coming and living inside you is a sign of the pleasure of the Father. It's a sign of God's pleasure on you. So he sees the Holy Spirit and he's pleased as the Holy Spirit empowers you to pray. But not only this, your, your prayers come from a place of privilege. Your prayers come from a place of privilege. You are part of God's family, adopted, and you have rights. Verse 15 and 16 again. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In the ancient world, in first century uh, Rome culture, uh, honor and shame were really big deals. It was a culture of, of honor and shame. So shame was the worst thing. You, you did not want to be associated with shame, and honor was everything. But honor could come multiple different ways. You could have uh, achieved honor. You could achieve honor through an accomplishment, something that you did. But primarily, honor was ascribed, ascribed honor. And ascribed honor came primarily through the family that you were a part of. And primarily in that family, the honor was ascribed to you. It came through the father. This is why frequently, you know, someone's referred to as so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, because they're known by the honor that goes with, with their father. And Paul is trying to convey here that, that because of the family that we are in, the honor of our father is ascribed to us through, through adoption. <clears throat> um, I think it's so fascinating. What, what is it that, that we, by the Holy Spirit, what do we cry out to God? What do we call him here? Abba, Father. And that word Abba is, is Daddy. But in the Old Testament, people did not refer to God as Abba Father. That was, that was considered too personal, too intimate of a term to, to refer to the creator of the universe. You know who was the first person in the Bible, at least recorded, um, I think the first person, to, to refer to God as Abba Father? It was Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14 he cries out to his father and says, Abba, Father. And so when Paul is saying that you can call God the same thing that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, can call God, he means you are as close to God and as loved by God the Father as Jesus himself. That is your place of privilege. And that breeds confidence to approach the Father. Not as a servant would, would approach his master or a worker would approach his boss, but as a, as a little child approaches her father. We know this to be true even on a human level. Again, my, my daughter Ellie, she has access to my heart in a way that like a casual acquaintance would not have. And she can make requests of me that the casual acquaintance would not even think of, of asking me. 
Now, I understand that, I, I know that um, whenever you start talking about God as Father, there's always going to be, there's people that they didn't have the privilege of getting to grow up in a family with, with a godly father. And some of us did have that amazing blessing, some of us did not. But um, I think our, t- our tendency is to, we see the, the fatherhood of God through the, the lens of our fathers, but we get it backwards. They're, they're a, a reflection of him, an imperfect reflection. He's not a reflection of them. He's not a reflection of them. Um, when we had Ellie about 17 months ago, uh, I expected to, to understand a little bit better the fatherhood of God. And I thought, yeah, probably I'm becoming a father now, so I'm probably going to understand the fatherhood of God better. And I did, but not through the way that I expected. Um, what I'm learning is how much more I'm like Ellie than unlike her, and how much God is really unlike me as, as a father. I mean, I love Ellie, but I'm a very imperfect, fallen father. There was a, there was a day, um, been a lot of days like this, where I was watching Ellie, and I was getting impatient with her, uh, and just getting frustrated. She was just being a, a one-year-old, being a toddler. She wasn't doing anything bad. And, but I was just getting frustrated, and I just found myself, I was kind of letting it show and just found myself wanting to say, just go somewhere else, go play somewhere else. Let, let me have some alone time. Um, but God, in his kindness, he hit me with something later that day, and I, I just, I started thanking him, saying, God, thank you that you are not a father who gets tired of your kids. You're not the kind of, of God who says, okay, I've had enough. I need some alone time with just Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Let Daddy have some alone time and just send us away. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Um, even even in, in my immaturity, when I, when I pray, when I cry out to him in my immaturity, he, the reality is that he listens because of the honor that he's ascribed to adopt me, to adopt us into his family. So know your, that your prayers come from a place of privilege. But not only that, your prayers are precious. Your prayers are precious. What do I mean specifically by that? I have a specific meaning in mind. <clears throat> this was really the point that um, just really started wrecking me um, as, I was, as I was preparing this, this message. We all know that when adoption occurs, it's not cheap. It, it, I mean, just purely financially, it's not cheap. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's not cheap in other ways, too. It, it has a cost. There's a cost of you have to give up. Um, you give up freedom. You give up uh, convenience. You give up a lot of things. There is a, a price that must be paid for adoption to occur. And there is a price that occurs, too, in our adoption. The price is the life of Jesus. It says elsewhere in Romans 8 that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8, chapter 1 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love the verse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? It's not because God just said, well, I'm not going to condemn anything. I'm just going to shrug off sin. We're not condemned because the condemnation fell on Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> and so there's this there's this great exchange that occurs between us and Jesus. This is, this is amazing. Jesus is the eternal son of God, right? 
There's never been a time when he was not the son of God. He comes as a servant. He says in Mark, you know, I, I didn't come to serve. I, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. He comes to live a life of a servant, and he dies the death of a slave. You know that many of, many of the people, the men who were, who were crucified in the first century on the cross, they were slaves. It was common for slaves to be the ones who were on the cross. So Jesus, the eternal son, comes, lives as a servant, dies as a slave, so that we, those who are slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to fear, slaves to all kinds of things, can become sons. The son becomes a slave, so the slave can become a son. There's this great exchange. But more than that, not only that, Jesus pays the privilege for our prayers to be heard. You know, it says in, in Revelation, it says a couple of places, it talks about the prayers of the saints going up like incense before the Lord. And it's, a, it's a, an Old Testament picture of, of our prayers rising up like incense that the priests would, would burn before the Lord. And so there's a pleasing fragrance, fragrance to God. But incense comes from sacrifice. And so the sacrifice that makes the incense pleasing is the sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus Jesus cried out from the cross and was not heard by his father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can cry out and be heard by our father. Our privilege depends on Jesus. And we're so quick. I'm, I'm so quick to take this for granted. But here's the thing that started really hitting me. The words, the words of prayer that we utter up to God in prayer are literally blood-bought words. They're blood-purchased words. God paid for them with the life of his son. So when we say that our prayers are precious to God, I think that God, he, he sees us praying, he hears us praying from down here, and he says, I paid for that prayer. I purchased that prayer with the blood of my son. And so... Moms, when you're at home in the chaos of your kids, and I know that it can be chaotic because I hear from my own wife, your prayers, even if you're just kind of throwing up prayers and you, they feel clumsy and awkward and just rushed, your prayers are precious to God. He paid for them. Singles, when you're, you feel like, yeah, I'm just, I'm forgotten. I don't have a place in the church. Maybe you send up prayers to God from a place of loneliness. Your prayers are precious to God. He's heard them. He paid for them. Men, when you pray for your families, when you intercede for your children and your wives, your prayers are precious to God. He purchased them with his blood. Everyone, students, young and old, your prayers are precious to the Lord. He paid for them with his blood. So notice how the very existence of prayer the very fact that prayer even exists and we can take part in it is a testimony to the gospel, to the cross. And not only that, but to the whole Trinity, the whole Godhead. I think this is awesome. The whole Godhead is involved in our prayers. You have the Father sends the Son to pay the price so that we can become part of the family. You have the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts, to dwell in us, to empower us to pray. You have the Spirit and the Son praying for us, literally interceding for us. And then you have the Father hearing both 
our blood-bought prayers and the intercession of the Son and the Spirit. It's this great, glorious conversation that's going on within the Godhead that we're, we're part of as when we pray. Theologian Fred Sanders, he, he says it like this. He says, there is always already a conversation going on among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we pray, we're joining that conversation. We have been invited to call on God as Father, invited by a spirit of sonship that cries out, Abba, Father, as the eternal Son does. Tim Keller says this. He says, prayer is our way of entering into the happiness of God himself. I love that. Prayer is our way of entering into the happiness of God himself. So out of his grace, God beckons us to join into the very joy and happiness that he knows within his own Godhead through, through prayer. This is gospel-shaped prayer. And this has been so helpful in my life that I don't do this near, off, near as often as I should, but it's been so helpful that in my life to, rather than just rushing into my prayer requests and just, you know, making some, some requests of the Lord to, usually, I, usually my, my place of prayer is in my car. Um, but when I, when I take time to just meditate on who God is, on the gospel, on my privilege, where I am, who I am because of the gospel, it so, so helps my times of prayer. It does a couple of things. It, it gives me peace in the situation that I'm, that I'm praying in, but it also stirs up boldness to, to pray to the Lord. Um, also, when we do this, it, it helps when our prayers are not answered in the way and in the timing that we think they should be answered. Um, when, when we have gospel-centered, gospel-shaped prayer, you know, sometimes the, the change that the Lord wants to work is, is a change in our hearts before he works change in the circumstances around us. I'm not saying that he doesn't change circumstances in response to prayer. He does, but sometimes the change that he first wants to work is, is in our hearts. Jonathan Edwards said that, that prayer tends to prepare the heart for the reception of mercy. It tends to prepare the heart for the reception of mercy. You know, we often, we just want to say a quick prayer to see my uncomfortable circumstances changed, but um, it could be that, that God wants us to, to linger a little bit in prayer. This is what the old writers, they, they would call this, they would say, pray until you pray. They'd say, pray until you pray. Meaning, linger with the Lord a little bit. Don't just throw out some, some requests and then you're done. But spend some time meditating on who God is, enjoying his presence. And you're going to see that you start to feel, feel his pleasure as you run in prayer. I want to close, um, bring, this, bring this to a close by uh, just telling a, a personal story story testimony and I tell this not as a necessarily a principle saying God always works in exactly this way um, but this is this is just a testimony of how he worked um, in, in my life and in my wife Andy's life this is about three years ago um, really li literally three years ago this March uh, we were living in Texas at the time we were engaged we were going to get married that summer and um, we we're both working out there and uh, she hurt her back. She was, uh, she was a teacher, a Bible teacher at the school out there, and uh, she 
really was doing nothing, like bent over to pick up a, a pitcher of water and, and just did something and hurt her lower back really badly. And I was in a lot of pain, had to start missing work, and couldn't really do much other than just lay on the couch. And um, so we have people praying out there. We're praying. Um, I love fullness. Fullness had, had ladies praying. Miss um, Thadia, I think you were one of them. Uh, ladies were praying for her. Hadn't even met her yet. This was before we had moved back to, back to Birmingham. Um, but, but she wasn't getting better. And time was, was going by. We're getting closer and closer to the wedding in June. And um, we're getting frustrated. I mean, I'm trying to say the right stuff, like, yes, we trust the Lord. But I'm getting frustrated. And I'm, I'm having these, these questions. And I'm not having second thoughts about getting married. Um, but, but I'm having questions like, my word, I mean, is this, is she going to even be able to walk down the, the aisle on our, on our wedding day? What is our honeymoon going to be like? Um, I mean, is, is this going to be our, our life? And, um, and so we were just kind of feeding off of each other's frustration. And I remember praying in the car one day, driving home from, from being at her apartment and just, talking to the Lord and just saying, um, God, what is up? Just go ahead and heal her already. I mean, what are we waiting on? Let's just get this out of the way. And uh, funny how we tell him what we think he needs to do. <clears throat> but, um, but I remember so clearly, I went back and was actually reading some of my, my journal at the time, but it was a Saturday morning, and I think it was actually in April when that, this happened, but um, it was a Saturday morning. We were both off work that day, and I was going to drive over to her apartment just to spend the day with her. And I was getting ready in my apartment to go, and um, I felt like the Lord spoke to me. And I, I felt like he said, uh, Scott, stop or take a break from praying for her healing and just worship me for who I am. He didn't say quit altogether praying for healing, but I felt like he said, take a break from praying for her healing and just worship me for who I am. And uh, so I'm driving in the car over there, and I felt like, then I felt like the Lord said, uh, Scott, you need to take more of a leadership role in this, in, in setting the precedent for you guys' attitude during this time. And then I felt like he said, uh, we needed to read some scripture out loud together. And so I get to, get to her apartment, and I tell her, like, hey, I think, I, th- I feel like the Lord said this to me this morning. And, and uh, so we, we get on the couch, and, and, um, Guess what passage I felt like the Lord told us to go read together out loud? Romans 8. <clears throat> and some other ones too, but, but Romans 8 was one of them. And so we're sitting there reading. I'm reading out loud, Romans 8. And uh, I start choking up. I start just getting, tearing up. And, and I can barely get the words out by the end. And I have had this strong sense that I need to get down on my knees and just repent before the Lord. And so by this time, she's crying too. We're both crying. And uh, so she, as best she can, gets down on her knees, and I'm down on my knees. And uh, it was just a sweet time of brokenness and repentance before the Lord, saying, God, I'm sorry for, for wanting to serve you on a conditional basis. And it was a, I, I believe it was really a foundation stone, setting stone in our marriage. Um, as, it was just a time of us to say before God, God, whether you heal or not, whether you change circumstances or not in our lives, we are yours. You are our Father. We belong to you. Um, we're here for you. And it, it, was, it was so good. And, 
uh, obviously he did eventually heal her. Um, it, it was not and it was not at one time. It took a, it was a process. Um, but he did bring, bring physical healing to her, but he worked change inside of us first as we lingered with him in the place of prayer, of gospel-shaped prayer. So, know your dependency on the Lord. Know your privilege before him in the place of prayer. Know that your prayers are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Your prayers come from a place of privilege. And your prayers are precious because they've been purchased with the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the reality of gospel-shaped prayer. And I ask that you would press this truth home in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Chris Kuhn's going to come up and...